Good morning, everybody. We're full house today. This is amazing for middle of July. So fantastic. I guess everybody's vacations just lined up, like just right. Everybody's back in town. Um, well, it's good to be with you today. What we're doing is we're continuing in our summer series called Stories We Tell. And in this series, what we're doing is we are looking at both common and also not so common stories from the Old Testament of the Bible with fresh eyes. That's the objective. Um, and our goal as we do this is not simply to kind of recite them or certainly not to memorize them or even to try to argue over what it means to believe them. Our goal in this series is to genuinely read them, the sources of wisdom and truth, and then by situating these stories as well as we can within the context in which they were formed, to hopefully rediscover what it is that they can still teach us about who God is, who we are, and what it means to be in relationship with him. Last week, we talked about why we might choose such an approach Old Testament stories. We found that the best reason to do it is because God once led Israel to choose this very same approach to storytelling first. So by looking at the history of the Old Testament, which is something that we know transitioned from an oral tradition to a written account sometime during the Israelites' exile in Babylon in the 6th century BCE, BCE, by looking at it in that context, we learned that those first scribes of Scripture were eager to explore how the stories from their cultural past might offer them specific reassurance in a current crisis. So the story of Moses and the Exodus, which we looked at last week, became like their experience in captivity. And by seeing this echo in God's plan, they were able to live in their current moment with patience, hope, and resilience as they waited for a new deliverance. And the cool thing is that when we read these stories, we can look for the very same things in them. So the Exodus doesn't have to just be a thing that happened. It can continue to be a living source of real wisdom for us as we endure hardship. And now, for the rest of this series, what we're going to do is we're going to go back in time in the Bible to the earliest stories... And then this week and the next six weeks, we're going to work our way forward as we talk about them. And the hope is that we'll be able to see not just more and more of those little echoes as we go, but we'll begin to see a bigger story unfolding. And this way, when we get back to our focal text for this year, which is the Gospel of Luke in the fall, we're going to be able to see that story too with fresh eyes be able to wonder, how does Jesus really satisfy our questions about our relationship with God as those questions have been explored and worked through for thousands of years? And we'll have to wait to see. That's a tease for, like, come back in, I don't know, like the end of September, if you want. Um, but this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to tackle something that is so famously complicated and so easy to misread that I've been actively avoiding it for years. So again, thanks for showing up. This <laughs> it's really hoping for like ten people. Um, anyways, the story we're going to look at is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. The story is found in the eleventh chapter of Genesis, right in between the story of Noah and the Great Flood, which closes out the kind of prehistory section of Genesis. And then the story of Abraham, who is the great ancestor 
of Israel. And the story of the Tower of Babel is short, and so I'm going to read it in its entirety here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. You're seeing why I've avoided this story. So, if you're like me, and you first heard this story as a child, you were probably told that there were two big things happening here that you needed to know about. The first is that this is an explanation story, right? The Tower of Babel narrative offers a clear answer for one of the big mysteries of human civilization, which is why people who have common ancestors speak so many different languages and live in so many different places. If we all came from the same place, which we all agree that we must, why don't we sound and look the same? The Tower of Babel story says that the answer is, well, God did it, right? He divided our language and he scattered us around. But what's the second thing? So that's the ex explanation story. The second thing is that it's also a cautionary story. The reason that God scatters everybody is because, according to the way that I was taught the story, when we're together as people, we can become prideful and arrogant. We worship ourselves and not God, and so God has to kind of break us up. Now, when I was eight years old, all of this worked totally fine. It made a ton of sense. It reminded me of like what all of my teachers would do when I like sat with my friends in the classroom, right? Like if I sat, if I got to sit where I wanted to sit in class, and my friends and I had a common language, right? And we would cause trouble. And the only solution was like break us up, right? And that all clicked. But not so long ago, I gave this story a fresh look during my morning devotion. And I felt like really uncomfortable with it. And I might have felt uncomfortable with it the same way that you could be sitting here right now feeling uncomfortable with it. And what troubled me as I like reevaluated it were the apparent sins that we find here. That's what stuck out. We find them in verse four of the story, which reads like this. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, the issues then, according to the story, 
are twofold, that people want to make a name for themselves, and two, that they don't want to be scattered. But if we're looking at the story with fresh eyes, we have to wonder, are those two things that in the context of Scripture have already been prohibited? If we do a kind of deep dive on what it means in the ancient Near East, which is where this story is being told, to make a name for ourselves, it turns out we don't actually find a lot of disapproval of that. The word here that we're looking at best translates actually to something like legacy. And the most common means of legacy making, right, are procreation and family, which is something that is widely encouraged in both scripture prior to Genesis 11 and also in the ancient Near East where this story is coming from. We also, in the story, don't see any of those typical like red flags or those poisons that we run into in stories like greed or idolatry. The people here don't want to become God. They want to reach God. They want to get to the heavens where they think God lives. And there also isn't like one leader among them who's like elevated himself too highly, seeking his own greatness. And then even after God frustrates them in the story, he doesn't say in the story that they were arrogant. What he says, and maybe this is the most troubling part, right? What he says is that this is only the beginning of what they will do. So I don't know that making a name for ourselves is inherently the problem that the builders of this tower have. Now, the second apparent sin in the story is not wanting to be scattered. And there are some theologians over the years who have argued that the reason God's upset about them not wanting to be scattered is because it's this violation of God's words to Noah in Genesis 9 when he says to Noah after the rainbow and all that stuff, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right, And so the idea is, like, if he's telling them to fill the earth and then they're not wanting to be scattered, then they're somehow, like, violating what God has asked them to do. But there's a problem, and the problem is that Genesis 9 doesn't make that a command. What Genesis 9 explicitly does is call it a blessing. It is a blessing for them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you can't really violate a blessing. It's just something that's given. It's not a rule. Furthermore... A family, like, not wanting to be scattered around isn't the same thing, really, as not wanting to fill the earth. So it doesn't exactly work. And so where we end up is if trying to make a name for yourself isn't a widely accepted cultural problem, and if not wanting to be scattered isn't an obvious sin, then what are these people doing that God wants us to know that they shouldn't be doing. And this is, again, like why I didn't want to do this today, right? I didn't want Because I, I had to do a lot of digging. I was trying to figure out, like, what is the actual problem here? And I eventually found what turned out to be an extraordinarily helpful article by an Old Testament scholar and professor emeritus at Wheaton College named John Wall. This ended up being great because Walton is an expert on Genesis, and I need to clarify um, that much of where we're going from here is pretty indebted to his writing, to the article I found and then some others that, that I found as well. And what Walton says is this. He says that the key, once again, isn't understanding Israel. The key to understanding the story is understanding Babylon, the kingdom in which the Israelite authors of the story are exiled. And he writes this. He writes, 
that Babylonians, among others, believed that the gods had needs, food, housing, clothing, and so on, and that the gods had created people to meet those needs. That is all the gods care about. The religious practice in this system was not defined by faith or doctrine, by ethics or theology. It was essentially defined as the care and feeding of the gods. The result of this mentality was a codependence and a symbiotic relationship between gods and humans that was entirely transactional. People would take care of the gods, and the gods would protect the people and bring them prosperity. Success was to be found in finding favor with a god, and favor was found by meeting his needs, indeed his every whim. Pampered deities made for flourishing cities. Now, Walton reads the Tower of Babel story through the lens of a thing called the Babylonian ziggurat. You may have seen like these pictures run into this word. Sometimes you run into it when like you're doing the thing where you're there's supposed to be like a thing for every letter, you know, and like there's just there aren't a lot of Z's. So there's like zebras and ziggurats. It's always xylophone or X-ray, never anything else. Anyway, so a ziggurat, which if you've never looked at one, is a step pyramid structure whose purpose in Babylon was to entice the gods to come down to earth, down the steps of the pyramid. A people would build a ziggurat to court a particular god to bring them favor and prosperity, to build up their name. And thus, what's happening in the Babel account is that the god of Israel is rejecting the kind of codependent relationship that the Babylonians encouraged. Walton writes that the problem was not that they wanted to make a name for themselves. The problem was that they were exploiting a relationship with God to do so. The Jewish God, our God, doesn't have needs people are needed to meet. He doesn't live somewhere else and need a kind of staircase to get down to us. He goes where he pleases and interacts with human beings because he loves them full stop. Now, I've been in the weeds, which is not unusual if, you're, if you've been around for a while. I've been in the weeds for a while this morning, and I hope that it's been interesting to you, but if you were somebody that like tuned out about five minutes ago, and like this is the moment where I'm like, tune back in, come back. Because I think this is actually something that we can hear. It's the issue with the Tower of Babel is that the people are seeking a transactional relationship with God, whereby they entice him to earth and give him gifts of praise in exchange for the building up of their own name. Then maybe we haven't wandered as far from Babylon as we think we have. Because I would contend that we still do just this. And we do it a lot. Consider the typical model for an American evangelical church, if you'd like, which is to say a church that's in the same lane as our own. You plant with energy. You plant a church with style. We put a premium on things like exciting worship and dynamic speakers. We gather a crowd, and then we try to put on... I didn't say I was. I'm the second person who worked here. I'm not the guy that started this church. Anyway. 
The point is, we put a premium on these things, on building a crowd, and we try to do this thing where we put on such a great weekly service that people will keep coming back because it was fun, because it was exciting, right? And that once they keep coming back, they'll eventually do things like give financially, right? That's really helpful. And then ultimately, the brand of the church will grow. The numbers and the money and the brand will grow. And then, once we've built a church that can impress God enough, God will show us his favor by making us famous. And then, once we're famous, we'll be able to change the world for him. It's like down the line somewhere. And you might notice, like, we love metaphors like lighthouses for this. I'm a metaphor guy. I hate that metaphor. I hate the lighthouses. Not, like, I understand there are churches that use that name. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about, like, the use of lighthouses in church culture. Because, like, what we're doing here is we're saying, like, this place is like a beacon on the rocks of some turbulent, worldly, sinful city that's dangerous. And this beacon draws people in. And it, and it gives them hope. And it keeps them safe from like all the things that could wreck them. But I would contend that maybe a lighthouse isn't actually all that different from a ziggurat. It's a monument that we build so God can come down there and make our name. I'm not trying to, to name names here. And I'm also, believe me, not saying that revolution is immune to this criticism. We're not. What I am saying is that this is the cultural model that we are living with. It is what seems to work here in the place where we are. And that we should be wary of it. If a story like the Tower of Babel has the ability to tell us more about who God is, and, and here's what it tells us about him, right? He's not transactional. He doesn't have needs that we can impress him by needing, then that story can also tell us more about who we are. And here's what it tells us. We are transaction. We do crave simple formulas for our own blessing. And so how can we recognize these temptations and keep them from us, keep them from our church? How can we make sure that we see our relationship with God even our worship of God as something that responds rightly to who he is instead of something that we are doing because we're trying to get his attention. And this is where this is a deeply personal challenge for me. As I've said a million times here, I am like an achiever by nature. It's my wiring. I want to do such a good job with the tasks in my life that I'm given, that somebody somewhere will eventually see my hard work and then they'll tell me what I want to hear, which is that I'm worthwhile. Just tell me that I'm doing a good job. And that brokenness in me, in my, in my wiring, has always infiltrated my relationship with God. Always. And it's a constant question for me. If I'm reading my Bible or if I'm praying every morning, or if I'm putting my own desires on hold in order to meet the needs of somebody else, if I'm doing those things in order to be worthy of God's favor, am I trying to impress him enough that he'll tell me I'm worthwhile? I put these efforts to do good and be good first, and then I wait on God to notice it. And then, yeah, to bless, right? 
And what I'm struggling with in this story is, is this recognition that this is so backwards. This is so backwards. And this story, as old and strange as it is, calls me out on that. Because we don't get to manipulate God. We need to be cautious about the things that we do to try. In the story, God defines himself as inescapably different from the gods that the people are seeking. And he frustrates the designs of the builders because they reflect an unhealthy sense of who and what they are. But like, what about the scattering, right? Why does God do that? Why is this God's solution? And what can the scattering teach us about how we are supposed to be relating with God? The story goes that the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So to start with, God's plan, right, stops the bad plan that the people are forming. Once they're scattered, they stop trying to build the tower, which is the initial goal. But I would argue that God could have accomplished this by simply knocking the tower down, right? And in fact, I'm pretty sure I remember that he knocked it down, and it troubles me when I read this story and he doesn't knock it down. Are you guys like pro-knockdown? Do you remember the knockdown? I do. I don't remember them just quitting. It was the Southern Baptist thing or something. I don't know. (laughs) Different translation. Anyway, the point is, is he could have just knocked knocked the thing down and it would have stopped that work. So what more is God accomplishing by confusing their language and then sending them away? Now, I've said this a lot lately, that there are things in the Bible that are uncomfortable that I cannot fix for you. Instead, we just have to face those uncomfortable things with courage and see what happens if we try to let them in, even if they're hard. And I think this is actually one of those things. I can't fix the scattering and the confusing of language. But what I can do is ask, like, what is the ultimate result of splitting up all these people? And I can also interrogate myself, interrogate myself and ask myself, why does it feel so mean to me? Why don't I like it? And I think that if I face this particular passage, if I face what I'm afraid of in this passage, what I find is that I don't like the thought of God abandoning people. And that's what this feels like to me. They're there trying to get his attention, maybe in a bad way. But still, like, that seems nice enough to try and get God's attention, even if you're misguided. And then he like sends them all away. He makes their lives harder. And in our own context, I think in particular here, as people in a country that has been made significantly more dangerous lately because of our divisions and our inability to communicate kindly and respectfully with one another, I think in this context, it is particularly difficult for me to see any hope that might result from scattering people and making it harder for them to talk. But I think it can be helpful, again, if we try to stay in the story's context. What is the big point that God seems to want to make here? Well, I think it's that he is not like the Babylonians' gods. That's a thing he wants the people to know. He's not seducible. You don't get to entice him. He's not local to a particular place. That his reign is independent of any control of any other gods and that his authority extends everywhere. 
Now, if that's what he is trying to say is true about him versus the other gods that the Israelites know, then yes, scattering the people might feel like he's casting them away. But then again, if he is who he's saying he is, then nowhere is really away, right? And in fact, tearing down that tower doesn't make him any less accessible to people. Do you know what happens in the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 12? It's the calling of Abraham. It's the story where instead of being chosen by the builders of the ziggurat to be their god, God chooses a person with whom he's going to start a new relationship. And what is the core of God's promise to Abraham? Well, we find that in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. He says, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What the people wanted at Babel will come to pass. A great name, a gathering of God's blessing on a people. But it's going to happen in God's way and not your way. And by scattering all of these people all around the earth, God has placed them in just such a way that the full scope of his kingdom can be felt and can be discovered. Here's John Walton again. This passage, and all of Genesis also reminds us that God has planned from the beginning to be with us. We need to have an Emmanuel theology. God with us reflects his desire and our privilege. Emmanuel is not just a Christmas story. God's plans and purposes have always been to be in relationship with and to dwell among the people that he created. This was initiated in the Garden of Eden and reflected in the purpose of the temple. It exploded into a new reality in the incarnation and reached unimagined heights at Pentecost when Babel was reversed and people spread throughout the world, not in the aftermath of a failed project, but with the presence of God within them. If we believe God is already with us, if we have what Walton calls this Emmanuel theology, then we are already equipped to be his kingdom people wherever it is that we are. Walton makes a reference here to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fills Jesus' disciples and enables them to speak in every tongue all at once. And it really is a beautiful like, reversal and echo of this older story. Our ability to communicate has been restored not so that we can build those monuments that impress God and get his attention. It's been restored so we can share the love of the God who first loves us with our neighbors, no matter where it is that we've been scattered to. The dwelling place of God can be within each of us if we allow it. And the hope is right here and freely offered 
by a God and offered to all of us. So what do we do with all this? I think we can learn that this place, right, this service that you're in is a gathering of God-holding people for the sake of celebration and not bargaining and not trying to impress them. And this community, like this church that we're all a part of, is scattered on purpose throughout the week so that we can demonstrate the full reach of God's kingdom well beyond the boundaries of this building. God already loves you and God can love through you in ways that spread an awareness and a relationship with him rather than trying to manipulate or control that relationship. Which is to say, like, I don't think that we're supposed to be lighthouses, right? We're not supposed to be some beacon that everybody comes to in order to find hope. Like what we're supposed to be are like little candles, like all out on the shoreline, right? I don't know why I'm extending the metaphor. You get it. The point is, like, that light isn't something that, like, oh, when we all come together, it's so bright, it's so wonderful, and that's going to make other people want to come here too. Like, the actual message here is when we disperse, it's when you are going out and being that light wherever it is that you are. Because not only does that more, is that more personal, right? It's a personal engagement with you and your neighbors or coworkers or people that you meet on the street. Not only is it human and relational in that way that echoes God's personal investment and concern and passion for us, but also it's so much more far-reaching, right? Like the boundaries of that kingdom are so much more far-reaching than whatever the reach of any single lighthouse could ever be. The point isn't to gather so that everybody comes to us. The point is to go, to accept the scattering, to be the light that you are, and to take that into the relationships that you run into in your life. That's the excitement. That's the joy. That's how we do the thing that shows that we've learned the lesson that this story is trying to teach us.